Welcome to Inspirational Australians, where we share stories of Australians making a difference in their communities and in the lives of others. We at Inspirational Australians acknowledge the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waterways on which this podcast is produced. We pay our respect to elders past and present and those who are emerging and extend our respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. At Inspirational Australians, we are inspired by the world's oldest living culture and pay homage to their rich storytelling history when we share stories on our podcast. Thank you, Chrissy. Still getting used to saying that one. I said thank you, Annette, for a long, long time. But of course, we are in season two of the Inspirational Australians podcast. So things are sounding a little bit different, hopefully. Love to hear people's feedback. You can always follow us at inspirational.australians on Instagram and uh, message us there. Let us know if you're enjoying the new season or you can reach out via LinkedIn, Awards Australia, uh, or Facebook Awards Australia are our main channels. And of course, Inspirational Australians podcast is brought to you by Awards Australia. And what we do is we bring community achievement awards and young achievement awards programs to life with the sole purpose of sharing stories about inspirational Australians, which is why this podcast makes so much sense for us and why we love doing it. So last thing before we get cracking into the episode is just a reminder to rate and review the podcast especially an Apple uh, Apple podcast because it helps people find us and, and gives us a good rating. So please, if you've listened and enjoyed, give us a quick rating, five stars, of course. Um, but yes, let's get into today's episode. I'm really excited to be speaking to Bianca. And this episode is actually brought to you by Spirit Super, the super fun for hardworking Australians. Let's be honest, first jobs are rarely glamorous. But whether you're stacking shelves, flipping burgers or starting an apprenticeship, we all want to start strong especially when it comes to our super. Thankfully, Spirit Super make understanding and looking after your super super easy. With a focus on strong returns, award-winning service, and super experts offering practical and helpful advice, Spirit Super is here for you and your super right from day one. For more info, go to spiritsuper.com.au. Consider the PDS and TMD at spiritsuper.com.au slash PDS before making a decision. Ishara is Motor Trades Association of Australia, Superannuation Fund, PDY LTD. Advice is provided by Quadrant First, PDY LTD. And past performance isn't a reliable indicator of future performance. So now to our guest, Bianca J. Mazzuccelli, who's spreading awareness on autism spectrum disorder and neurodiversity. Bianca J. is a proud Gunchimara woman. She's developed the Auditory Sensory Prevention Technology, or ASPT, as I'm sure we'll refer to it, uh, only moving forward, designed to help children and adults with autism or who are neurodiverse to combat the challenges they face in social settings and live an inclusive social life. In 2022, she won the Swinburne Venture Cup for her ASPT and of course we know Bianca as a finalist in the most recent Seven News Young Achiever Awards for Victoria in the Spirit Super Create Change Awards. So welcome to the podcast, Bianca J. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, fantastic. What's the day been like for you so far? Um, I started the day um, with my first day back, first day back at university, so um, a full-on day. Yeah, I can imagine. So first day back from just a term break or have you had a, a bit of a break in your studies? 
Yeah, so just a um, mid-semester break. So now coming into my third year of my undergraduate. So Awesome. And so what is it that you're studying? So I'm doing my Bachelor of Psychological Sciences with a double minor in Criminology and Applied Psychology. Criminology is one of those ones to me that's like, sounded so interesting. Uh, is it is it <laughs> like as interesting as it seems like, you know? I think it is. So like I um, added on my minor of Criminology just purely out of interest. Um because, you know, it was like true crime documentaries and your law and order SVU. And I was like, oh, do you know what? I want to learn more about this. So that's how I got into the criminology side as well as obviously the psychology side. Glad it's not just me who thought that kind of stuff. <laughs> that's awesome. So, yeah, back into uni. Thanks for making time to be on the podcast today. Um, so much to talk about and, you know, start in the obvious place, ASPT, uh, Auditory Sensory Prevention Technology. Um it sounds pretty complicated. Can you, you know, give us the layman's terms or help us kind of understand what that means? Do you know what? It sounds very complicated, but the basis of it, it is something actually really simple. So the auditory sensory prevention technology is an earpiece that disperses white noise. Um, so it's not a noise cancelling headphone. It's not a hearing aid. It's a one function earpiece that um, will disperse white noise to the person wearing it that will counteract the overstimuli that people with autism and other diagnoses face in a social setting. So imagine a school excursion or a birthday party, um, places that are quite loud and are quite overwhelming. So my understanding of kind of sensory overload and, um, you know, stimuli and things like that has come from having two small children, myself, um, and my wife, you know, it's kind of sharing that, oh, geez, at certain times, just the noise level is too much. And so, yeah, we've talked about it heaps and, you know, I, I hate saying this, but I did my own research, you know what I mean? Just uh, looking up and kind of, yeah, uh, just understanding a bit more about it and why that is such a trigger for people. So from that point of view, it does make sense what you're talking about um, and having a, a family member who is on the uh, autism spectrum. Yeah, I can see how that would would be helpful what is it that led you down the path of, of working on these kind of things? So it's with this, I, I won't say I came about it by accident, but it was done through a assignment in my human factors of psychology, which is how we as people work with technology on a psychological basis. So think of like aviation or driving a car or, you know, why do we want to push the red button that says do not press? Um, and I had these list of assignment topics and I had a look and I was like, do you know what? None of them are jumping out to me. None of them have like sparked my interest. So I asked them like, can I do mine on autism studies or neurodiversity? Cause it's something very close to my heart and something I've grown up with, you know, from, from birth, having parents and family members, um, you know, who are on the spectrum. And then from that, I had a think and I threw my research, I went, well, why don't we combine the use of headphones and noise cancelling things with the use of white noise? So I sat down with a pencil and a bit of paper and the next thing you knew I've had, I came up with this design and um, my lecture went, Bianca, do you understand that this is something that can be made? And I was like, no, it's not. And now here we, here we are from that. So it's been um, a really big journey. That's pretty cool. Most people have ideas that sound good on paper and then you kind of, explore it and you're like ah it's not going to work that's not feasible or it's already been done it's released in you know 1500 different models so this is a rare opportunity like occasion where you've kind of come up with this bit of an idea and you actually a as your lecturer said you can make it and b 
you know, you tell me, is it something that's readily kind of available already? Is it something that's that's really common out there? It's not common at all. So the example that I use is um, just say you're a parent, a teacher or a, a child in primary school who's neurodiverse, and this is the closest thing that we have to the device currently. So you're, you're at a school excursion and you're at the zoo and it's loud and it's overwhelming and you know that you're going to hit that peak of a meltdown and other people can see you're going to hit that peak of a meltdown. By the time you get out an iPad or an iPhone or headphones and making sure that the five-year-old, you know, has the capacity to hold it all, remove them from the situation, they're already at a full-blown meltdown level. So what we've done is made sure that this is very easily accessible and that it's quick. So, And it's controlled by the person wearing it. So that child can feel their emotions starting to rise. They can feel that it's starting to get too much and they've just got to press a button and, you know, the distraction comes through as being the white noise. So the closest thing at the moment is that whole headphones and and phone and even if that is accessible at that time. So this will be um, worn by the person all ready to go. Yeah, that's cool. Very, very cool. And I know what you mean. I've got a four-year-old and a six-year-old, so... If they, if something is needed now, it's literally now. <laughs> One minute delay and it's too late. So exactly as you said. Yeah, that's it. And and um, so my focus is predominantly on youth, and but it's also for adults as well. And um, we're looking at different diagnoses on the neurodivergent scale, like ADHD, where you might be sitting in a meeting and it's you know that fidgety and it's all getting too much and you don't want to concentrate anymore instead of having um, those urges, you know, to tap your pen or to leave or to start wriggling, we can use things like green noise to come in in an earpiece. So, yeah, wide range of uses, um, but it's very exciting to see all these different things that potentially it could be used for. For sure. So you have to educate me. What's green noise? I'm not aware of that one. So we've got a couple of noises. I I refer to them as noises. Um, So we've got white noise green noise, blue noise, pink noise, brown noise. And the definition is pretty much the frequency of the noises is different. So whereas a white noise, you have a quite high pitch, that static, think of an old TV um, noise, whereas green noise is quite low. I reflect, think of a washing machine or an ocean sound. So it's the same basis, but the frequency of the sound um, varies in level. Yeah. And so a green noise, is that meant to you know, assist with people's brain activity or something, you're saying that in a meeting that that could be um, useful? Yeah, so seeing that we're not noise cancelling, you can still actually hear everything that's going on. It's just it's just um, diverting the mind to something else rather than everything else, Yeah, that makes sense. Mm, that's an interesting way to think about it, completely different to, you know, how a lot of people would, like myself obviously was speaking for, you know, view how we should be hearing things. You want to hear everything. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And it's, um, you know, there's a safety reason as well. Like you still want to be included and inclusive in these conversations. But those with diagnoses that are in neuro- neurodivergent, it's not that easy just sitting there and concentrating. Um, like a, we'll say, we'll say a typical person instead of your atypical can. So it's in getting that inclusivity as well where people don't have to remove themselves or feel like they're, maybe being looked at or um, not behaving in a way that's expected in these um, social situations. Yeah, for sure. 
So as part of the you know the bio I read out, it uh, mentioned that you won the Swinburne Venture Cup. So you know I think first you'll let us know what the Venture Cup is and uh, and how you went about winning it. So the Swinburne Venture Cup is through the Innovation Precinct at Swinburne, which is all about um, invention and um, business and getting things up from the ground from an idea concept, you know, to a full-blown product or company. And I did a couple of like science competitions beforehand and then um, the same lecturer that said that the device could be made sent me the um, information for the Venture Cup. And I was like, you know, this is something I'm interested in. I enjoy public speaking. I enjoy competing. And I get my idea out there, in, like, in front of a room um, of professionals. So got together a pitch and I had training that was provided um, for six weeks beforehand and very honoured to be up there with students doing their PhDs or professors or alumni from Swinburne when I was still an undergraduate myself and went up there, spoke about my passion and, and which is, you know, helping people with autism and neurodiversity and next thing I knew I'd won it. That's pretty cool, especially, as you said, against people doing PhDs and alumni and things like that. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it still seems very surreal to be put in this category with people um, and I'm still currently in my undergraduates. I just started third year today. So, you know, the future of where all this lies is very exciting. And also having the help of these people alongside me through the journey has been incredible. Was it a case of when you were announced as the winner, like what was your feeling at that time? Um, so I actually sat there and I was clapping um, in my seat because I hadn't realised and then I actually had my mum with me who flew down from Brisbane and she's like, Bianca, this is you. And I was like, What's oh, your name? <laughs> you know, this is me. I've just won it. Um, so it was absolutely surreal, incredible. You know, there was a big cup given. And for me, I'm like, you know, my name is going to be in that cup at Swinburne for the entirety of Swinburne. You know, it's something that I can go back and show my kids and my grandkids that, you know, my name is on this cup with some amazing um companies and technologies that have changed the world so that's that concept is so hard to grasp still but you know that's yeah. my name there we give out a lot of trophies with the young achieve awards and the community achievement awards but i've got to say there is something pretty cool about a cup there is and it's um you know i was carrying around the cup all night so there was actually two winners there was an alumni winner and a, and a current student winner um but it, that cup was mine for the night. That was um, <laughs> I was very very excited to have the um, big cup and carry it around. Yeah, that is awesome. So it sounds like a really good program where you had, as you said, six weeks of kind of support leading up. And you know what what kind of areas did you feel you needed the most support with, and kind of where were you feeling already, you know, strong in? So public speaking, um, I feel quite strong and I'm very, I'm quite comfortable. I grew up in the performing arts. So being in front of a crowd is, you know, it's like a second home. But whereas, you know, at coming to it towards a business perspective, I'm a, I'm a psych student. Like I know the brain and I know our behaviours. But in terms of a business, I really had no concept of idea, um, A, what it took, and then the engineering of the product as well because, again, I'm not an engineer, so, you know, working with all these people and um, going from business ev everywhere from your ABN to, you, you know, your full-blown patent patents and everything like that. So, and it's still a journey that 
I'm on. So now working with Swinburne and MedTech um, in conjunction and meeting people that work for the likes of, you know, Johnson and Johnson and now going into the medical side of it, which is something that I never thought, you know, would be in my wheelhouse of things of working with people, yeah, in a medical field. So, Yeah, well, that was, you know, you kind of led me to one of the questions I wanted to ask you, which is perfect. Where is it up to now, you know, because as you said, there's patents involved, there's medical side. I imagine there'd be quite a, a long process of getting something like this, you know, from concept stage to kind of rapidly, uh, not rapidly, readily being produced. Yeah, so this, at the moment, we're um, working with different soundboards um, to get the sound like correct. And then we're going into, we get to go into the research side, which is where I'm most excited for this to go. Um, planning on doing my master's in research in this particular field because of the device and because of the spark in interest. So at the moment, yeah, we're playing around with different soundboards and making sure that that frequency is correct, that the sound is safe, the volume is safe, everything um, works. And then we start with the functionality of it. And, you know, we get to test sound on people that are, that are you know, willing to come and be a guinea pig for me while we get all this up and running to see how grateful the impact we can have and how quickly we can measure brain waves and everything from an overstimulation, um, you know, to a calm, a calmness yeah. within the brain using using white noise. So a device like this can usually or could take years really to to be, as you said, workshopped, researched, and then kind of all those things that need to happen. Yeah, it can take years and I'm, you know, very fortunate that I've started this in my second year uni and it's been less than 12 months since I've won the Venture Cup. So it's going very, very quickly for a new technology and in the medical field and everything like that. However, for me, I want everything, you know, ready to go and then learning that that doesn't work in these kind of processes, that it does take time and a lot of patience. So it's just taking it every step as it comes, working through it. And I don't want to put out something that's, you know, got any flaws. So getting it to that um, perfect status to be on readily available on the market. And I've always said that I want it available at Chemist Warehouse, um, you know, for your everyday family, affordable, uh, because I know the costs of what it can, you know, be with a child that's uh, got autism spectrum disorder or and uh, other diagnoses of, you know, occupational therapy, doctor's appointments, speech therapists, and it all adds up. So Chemist mm. Warehouse is my goal, always has been. So yeah. that's hopefully where we'll end up. Yeah, that's awesome. Would you say that, you know, and I guess maybe it's just terminology, but, but Bianca, would you say that, you know, you've got a startup or is it yeah, kind of something else? No, it's exactly what it is. It's a startup company. So, you know, there's other things within this company, which, you know, I've created, I guess, now of things that I want to look into. One of them is, you know, writing children's books about inclusivity and diversity and how we as um, non-neurodiverse people interact with those who are neurodiverse. And it's all, for me, it's all about inclusion and that sociability. And I believe that it's a human right for every child to have a friend or have the ability to make a friend which we see a lot happening with, you know, children with autism spectrum disorder where that sociability is not there due to being overwhelmed. Yeah, the startup company is on the way and hopefully can dip my toe into a few different things but still to do with the um, neurodiversity pool. 
So you did you did touch on it earlier on, but you said it was a very personal to you. So you know, you're happy to speak a bit more about that and kind of where that was founded and and kind of why it's yeah so important to you. Yeah, absolutely. So my best friend's brother Matthew, who is now 25 years old, um, very high on the spectrum, um, verbal but very limited in communication. And I've, you know, watched Matthew grow up and I've seen the struggles of what happens when he's in a social setting and it does get too much and the way that people can look at him sometimes. And it breaks my heart that, you know, he hasn't had this same opportunity that, you know, I have had or my best friend has had, you know. He locks himself in his room some days and it's I've seen how detrimental it can be to his mental health now, you know. This is something he's lived with for 25 years. And, you know, that friendships aren't there, you know, mm. and it's I call him one of my best friends because I love him to pieces. He's like a bro- he's like my own brother. So, you know, helping children like him from a young age, being able to have that sociability can make a great impact, even coming into adolescent and then going into adulthood. So he's been an, a massive inspiration to me and everything I'm doing, I'm doing to help people like Matthew. To be more to be more included in everyday life. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a really interesting point you mentioned. You know, with that context in mind uh, about you know books and things like that, and kind of just making it normal and normalizing it for people. Because I feel sometimes, you know, and you could extend this to, to disability of any type, that people almost psych themselves out of like, oh, I don't want to say the wrong thing or upset anyone, and so they just think, well, it's easier if I just don't talk to them. Yeah, that's a, and that's exactly right. And um, I was quite young with this one. So we had a family friend when um, autism was kind of first coming um, into no, focus yeah, yeah, with uh, higher levels of um, being diagnosed and children being diagnosed um, with autism spectrum disorder. And I saw with him, you know, at five and six years old when he'd be at a birthday party and his behaviour would be seen as out of control and the hitting and the biting would start and the parents of the other kids were went, well, we don't want him at our kids' birthday parties because of the behaviour. And the next thing you know, this, you know, five, six-year-old boy isn't invited to birthday parties anymore mm. out of something that's very much out of his control. And it's heartbreaking to parents as well, you know, To and it's not just the socialisation of the kid that suffers, it's the socialisation of the parent because then you're now ostracised because of your child's behaviour which, you know, you don't know how to control and the child yeah. doesn't know how to control either. So it's making sure that everyone is being included in a, in a social setting and, being, you know, being able to enjoy these birthday parties without, you know, having that stigma attached of but, um, behavioural issues or all your diagnoses. Um, so, yeah, very big on inclusivity. Do you think you said like uh, how now you know, a diagnosis and, and I guess awareness is coming a bit more into focus? And, you know, you, you've said it, the word neurodiverse and neurodiversity, that's obviously becoming a much more um, used term. People are more aware now of what that is. Do you think even things like that is helping the situation? Oh, absolutely. And I think it's helping those who are diagnosed as neurodiverse as well. Um, it's not, not that it gives an explanation to behaviours, but it's giving that, you know, almost like a community of people who are neurodiverse that have found each other and it's like, you know, people can go, well, you know, I'm neurodiverse, you know, I've got autism spectrum disorder, 
and then you'll find someone else go, oh, I'm neurodiverse, I've got extreme anxiety being around people, social anxiety, yeah. and then, you know, you have your people diagnosed with ADHD going, oh, I'm also neurodiverse. And so, and then through the likes of social media as well, you're seeing all these people connect. And in university settings as well, we see now the increase of quiet spaces and safe spaces where we're catering for people who are neurodiverse, which is really awesome to see. And even tactile playgrounds coming into play for kids, you know, that we're... um, I know that there's trampoline parks that are specially catered for children with autism, which is absolutely incredible to see all this starting to come in. Yeah, for sure. There is lots of change happening, you know, even I've seen uh, like the TikToks and Reels normalising, talking about being on the spectrum and things like that, which is awesome. You know, for you being a researcher, obviously, and um, still in university, what do you think are some of the future um, or, or where's the, the field headed in terms of um, neurodiversity? Oh, the field in neurodiversity, it's something that's definitely being explored a lot more. And, you know, we still don't have an explanation as to why people, um, you know, are diagnosed with autism. We don't know the underlying causes of what actually happens in the brain. So this is something that's got a lot of research ahead of it um, for myself my research will be with, yeah, neurodiversity and the use of sound. You know, how far can we take something as simple as sound into the field of neurodiversity? And then going on to other mental illnesses as well. Like an example I've been asked was, well, what about the likes of a diagnosis like schizophrenia? Can we use something as simple as sound to counteract voices in the head from a change of concentration of going from one thing to the sound so it's a very exciting well that's one side of the field but yeah in terms of neurodiversity we're learning a lot more and now we have the likes of you know people doing their masters in autism studies so all these things are coming about I think it's just going to make the world a lot more inclusive and people a lot more understanding of neurodiversity. Now I'm throwing a bit of a curveball question here at you so Hopefully it's not uh, too too curvy, but you know I'm just thinking out loud. Like obviously a lot of us would know someone who is neurodiverse, um, and there's probably a lot of employers or or people you know working in teams that might have someone who's neurodiverse in them. You know, with your kind of expert background, do you think they'd have any tips for people on how to best connect with or um, you know engage an employee, for example, uh, for example, who has that? Yeah. Absolutely. And look, the number one thing to do is if a person's come to you and said, I am neurodiverse, ask what their triggers are, number one, you know, and then ask them what they can put in place for when they may get triggered or overwhelmed, you know, making sure that that person doesn't feel like they're going to get into trouble if they need to exclude themselves to Mm -hmm. then come back to be still involved. Yeah, that's a good Um, one. And everyone's individual as well. So you might have something in place for, you know, we've got, Um, employees who are diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, not all their triggers are going to be the same and not all their treatments are going to be the same. So really customising to the individual of what triggers them, what helps them. For some people it it might be the use of sound. For some people it might be having a bouncy ball or a clicky pen or something to fidget with while being in meetings and, you know, not discriminizing against those people for what they need to be included. Yep. That's a good one. 
you know, for, for a, on a personal note, I know someone who he's neurodiverse, but he just loves researching a topic, like he focusing in on a topic, and then he'll you know uh, research and research and research. He's part of our team at Awards Australia, and we use his skill because uh, we have a lot of people who are nominated in the awards, and they kind of, you know, and it's it's really sweet because they're so humble. They're like, oh, I haven't really done anything, and a quick Google will show you that they've um, volunteered for 20 years, that they've, you know, got a doctorate in this and they've been helping the community in a myriad of different ways. Uh, and so he actually uses his skill on that and kind of says, oh, look, I've done all this. I've kind of uh, found information on you. It's absolutely incredible. You should definitely nominate. And uh, and they kind of go, oh, wow, like I didn't even know that information was out there uh, about me. That's unbelievable. And so you know, I feel like you can just use people's skills and their interests and um, and treat treat it as an asset rather than a uh, a negative. Oh, exactly. Utilize you utilize these skills and you don't utilize the wealth of knowledge that comes with people who are hyper focused on a certain topic because you're never going to find someone that's better in the field or more knowledgeable in the field for someone who has such an interest in it that they almost live and breathe it. You know, and it's. Um, sometimes it's incredible to sit down with people who have been diagnosed with um, autism and speak to them about what they love and you can see the brain fire because they've got so much to tell you that sometimes you just have to be like, okay, thank you, enough information. But seeing that excitement, um, I have that with Matthew as well. Like if Harry Potter Lego is a massive one, which I'm a Lego fan myself. So ask him about it. And then the next thing I've been sitting there for three hours and it's like, oh, thanks, mate. <laughs> I know everything there is to know now about every single Harry Potter Lego set that has come on the market. Yeah, it can be very um, heartwarming to watch when people have such an interest and such a love for a certain topic. Yeah, for sure. You know, another thing I wanted to ask you about in terms of, you know, the field of neurodiversity, getting back to that, I guess, is... You know, you mentioned something to me off air about the amount of different diagnoses there are. Um, you know, for me, I guess not being an expert in the area, my kind of understanding is very limited. So, yeah, can you just help us understand what types of diagnoses there are um, and, and the background on that? Yeah, absolutely. So the diagnoses as well of autism spectrum disorder has changed over the course of 10 years, but 10 to 15 years where We've gone away from things like Asperger's, which used to be a diagnosis um, in conjunction with autism, which now doesn't exist. And now it's all on a spectrum scale. So you've got your high-functioning autism and your low-functioning autism. So that's one band of it. And then, you've again, you've got ADHD, which, you know, uh, can be categorised. Some people with ADHD may be quite hyperactive, which is what our stereotypical ADHD looks like, is that hyperactive, can't sit still, but there's so much more on that scale. There's, you know, the sometimes there is the hyper-focus where, you know, I must get this done, I must finish it, and I'm not going to sleep until I do. And there's the big mood swings as well in between of on one side being so happy and overwhelmed that all this energy builds up to then going down and it's like, oh, that crash, that almost that crash and burn of energy. And you've got anxiety, yeah. which, of course, has many different umbrellas with anxiety. Um, social anxiety is probably a big one for people. Now, I feel like at the moment yeah. coming out of your COVID pandemic, um, especially for some people being locked inside for three years, is social anxiety of coming out the other side 
can be quite overwhelming. Yes. And the social anxiety of that feeling, you know, is are people watching me? Am I doing the right thing? This is just getting too much for me. So, yeah, there's a whole range, but they're my three focus points majorly. Yeah, Yeah, well, very interesting because when I was a kid, I can't remember exactly what age, but yeah, I was diagnosed with ADD. And then I'll probably get this wrong, but I think as that went on, they were like, oh, no, it's ADHD or something. I don't know what it was, but eventually kind of like the medication wasn't really doing that much for me personally because I don't feel like I had the hyperactive thing where I was like, you know, I was almost the what you were saying about the the crash of energy, and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, we'll just don't go on the the medication. And as I became a teenager, for whatever reason, it seemed to, you know, not really be as much of an issue. So I think people go through that a lot, where they're like thinking back to the old days, or like, oh yeah, he's got ADHD or Asperger's. But yeah, as you were saying, that's not even a diagnosis anymore. Yeah, and it's you know, um, also we learn within ourselves sometimes what our triggers are or can be. And as we age, we go, well, I'm probably not going to do that because I know the effects that it can have on me mentally or have an effect on my behaviour. And sometimes we can't help it. You know, we live in a world where it's constantly on the go, where you can't just be like, you know what, I'm having an off day today. Mm. I think now it's starting to change as well. But, you know, I think I just need to stay at home um, in my own little bubble today rather than go out and put myself in a social setting which I know is going to cause me some anxiety or yeah. some overwhelmedness. But yeah, the yeah, change of diagnosis and all that and then, yeah, learning our triggers as well, which I think everyone would know, you know, what triggers them when it makes them feel uncomfortable. So, yeah, le- learning ourselves as we age um, in neurodiversity, which... Yeah, this is a bit anecdotal but you know i have heard from some people as well that you know, speaking of anxiety that actually the parents of a, a child being diagnosed can then get a lot of anxiety around it because it seems like you know such a big deal and they kind of don't want their kid to have that diagnosis have you encountered that at all i haven't as yet but i do know i like so i've got friends in my age group you know where their kids are starting to turn that three or four where the energy is next level because they're a three or four year old child and they've you know they've asked you know i'm so scared that they've got adhd or i'm so scared that they're autistic because they you know like having their alone time and it's kind of having to say well you've got to remember that kids are still kids as well and there's one thing having a diagnosis and there's one thing of just doing normal child behavior yeah so that's where we've got to separate them as one. Well. I think what's happening is parents are so scared that there's a diagnosis in their child that they're trying to find it mm. rather than just kind of letting it, watching and letting it play out and then going in when and stepping in when needed. So I definitely think the anxiety is around there, but I also think the anxiety is not helping the cause of these children. So it's a really... um you know, kind of double-ended sword that you've got going on at the moment. And, of course, the likes, again, I go back to social media because it's something that's so prevalent now in society where people will get on TikTok or they'll get on Instagram and post their story and they'll go, you know, this is my diagnosis. And other people go, well, I like two out of five of those things they've posted, so I must have a diagnosis as well. And then that passes on and then the next person watches it and goes, oh, you know, I oh yeah I like my my socks folded a certain way oh sounds like I've got OCD <laughs> so it's yeah. um 
yeah, definitely trying to differentiate between a, a diagnosis, which is very complex, and there's multiple different categories that you tick off to be diagnosed with a neurological disorder rather than your social media diagnosis. Yep, that's so true. And, uh, yeah, kind of chuckling along there. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's funny. Um, so, you know, speaking of anxiety, this is a this is probably my worst segue of all time, but I'm going to give it a go. <laughs> speaking of anxiety, you said that, you know, you uh, love performing, you know, had a background of that, that the public speaking element of your uh, Venture Cup win wasn't an issue. Um, so I guess speaking of not having anxiety about those things, how did you find being at the, uh, you know, the Young Achiever Awards and even, you know, comparing that to the Venture Cup, not comparing, but like in a similar way, being in an awards program and going up on stage in front of people, that was fine for you as well? Um, that, oh, that was fine. The only thing I had was I was the first person called for the whole night. So start of the night, everyone there at Wes Bianca, you are first up, first category, first person on stage. Alphabetical order. The B. Alphabetical order and obviously the – Spirit Super Creating Change Award was the first award being presented. I was like, this is it. I'm up. <laughs> I'm, I'm your first person on the stage. But I was very lucky to have an amazing support network come and support me that night. Um, you know, I had my family there, my partner there, my best friends there and people from Swinburne as well, you know, that were all there um, to support me. So having that there as well definitely gave me that extra boost of confidence. But I'm still not too sure what's worse, a room of 500 strangers or your five closest friends. <laughs> a, That's a good point. That's tough, actually. You know, I much prefer doing a public speaking gig to 500 strangers, I reckon. I agree. You know, the strangers don't know you from a bar of soap, but yet, you know, you interact with your family and everything every day and, you know, they know what you're capable of. So it's that little bit of, and I do get more nervous than my family come and watch as well, naturally. Yeah. But, um, you know, want to make sure that doing them proud, which, you know, I think everyone has that feeling. Yeah, that's awesome. So, you know, obviously uh, you were a finalist in that category, which was pretty cool. And it was a very diverse range of people in that category um, doing different things. You know, would you, looking back, and I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, someone can edit it out if I'm not, but I think your mum nominated you in the awards, right? Yes, she did. <laughs> yeah, which is awesome. I love that. I've had some people say they don't want like to let their son or daughter know they've nominated them because it's embarrassing. And I say, no, it's it's amazing. It's such a compliment. What did what? How did that work? Did she tell you one day that oh, I'm nominating you, or um, or how when she nominated you in the awards, what happened? Um, so it was more like we both saw it um, advertised on TV through Channel 7 and mum sent me the brief as well going, is this something? And I've spoken to Swinburne about it as well and everything like that. So all speaking together, mum was the one that put through the the, the nomination. Yeah. And um, and then obviously got contacted to um, expand on what mum's knowledge was of what I do to then expand to go more in-depth. And then, yes, Swinburne as well were there. So we're like, you know, do we, um, <laughs> who's putting through a nomination? So it was, yeah, yeah, absolutely amazing. And then, yeah, filling in the gaps because, you know, mum gave it a fair, <laughs> fair shot to fill in everything. Um, yeah. You know, she had to work with me on that as well because she goes, you know, I'm, I can't remember everything you've done over the past 12 months because it's been, you know, a, a massive journey. Yeah, it's a good team effort. And 
you know, from our perspective, running the awards, we have nothing to do with judging other than bringing the experts together and putting them in the, the right place and giving them access to the all the documents they need. But, you know, we do try and help our nominees uh, in putting forward a really good application because I always say that awards programs are like the perfect vehicle for storytelling because people nominate in and that's, you know, our way of collecting some stories. It goes through to a judging process. That's our way of filtering through which are the best stories. And then awards night, podcasts, these kind of things is how we, you know, share the stories. Um, but obviously your mum's nominated you, super lovely, and she's not an expert in neurodiversity, in your studies, in your research. So that's where our team go, all right, look, we've got this great story in, but we can tell that there's a bit of detail that might need to be filled in here. So that was kind of a... Uh, a bit of a precursor or a bit of context as to why that happens. Yeah, and as well, um, you know, my mum's been diagnosed with ADHD as well for okay. a long, for, um, so my mum did her psych degree, don't know how many, I don't want to say how many years ago now, but, you know. No, um, that's had safe, mum as a psych- safe option. Had mum as a psychologist, you know, who is also neurodiverse. So a lot of the behaviours I know and a lot of my expertise comes from, you know, watching her. And, um especially the behavioural side. So, you know, when I do all of this as well, my focus is on, yeah, autism spectrum disorder, but I do have that, you know, ADHD knowledge that's come from yeah. come from mum. So, Well, there you go. I misspoke. She is an expert. She is an expert. She is an expert on um, neurodiversity, but she's an expert yeah. in terms, I guess, of living it um, and not researching it. So your mum sounds like a very interesting character. Um, <laughs> obviously, you know, at the start we said uh, that you're a proud uh Gunda Jamara woman and but you've you know kind of lived in Melbourne your whole life and can you just tell us a bit about where Gunda Jamara country is and and your mum and, and that kind of stuff yeah no problem so Gunditjmara country is pretty much between Portland and Warrnambool um so my um biological grandfather was born on country and grew up in one of the missions down there and due to the time and um, and everything else that was going on, so my mum was put up for adoption in 1971, um, you know, which then led to us having this massive gap in family history, which is all too common with Aboriginal families and trying to find those lost connections. And, again, it wasn't until mum was really, I guess, at university where we got to get these connections and then people knowing family that traces back to country and um, you know, we're still trying to fill in some gaps um, with all of this, but, you know, we're very proud of our culture and our heritage and, yeah, that's pretty much, yeah, so still trying to find the gaps. But, yeah, in terms of my mum as well, yes, um, psychology degree. She now works for the Australian Bureau of Statistics as a, status, as a statistician, um, yeah, and all while doing it with a diagnosis of ADHD. Mm. So, yeah, that must be, you know, hard for her and you, of course, uh, the family, with trying to fill in gaps and, you know, you can't just ring up someone and say, hey, uh, what happened to uncle, you know, so-and-so, you know, you don't have that access. Has it been hard for the two of you and, and you know, anyone else for that matter to kind of connect with culture or has, has that not been the hard part? Um, oh, this is going well into it. So for me growing up, it was something that I was very much ashamed of. Um, so, you know, I was in primary school in the late 90s, early 2000s, where, you know, there wasn't this, uh, this, this stigma was still majorly attached to mm. 
Aboriginal Australians and especially myself being a white Aboriginal Australian of that, well, you don't look Aboriginal, how do you know? Um, so I often hit it and we would, you know, try to evolve culture as much as we could, but that took me to come into my own journey and for me to be willing to accept my culture and then find my own path and own journey as I fit as an Aboriginal Australian. And so, again, my story is very similar to mum's going into university and through the MTC centre there, which is the Indigenous centre, you know, finding people that were like me in this setting. And I was like, you know, I'm not alone. So those feelings I had of this lost connection and we might not know blood family a lot, but what we do is we're creating our own family and our own mob for the people that we surround ourselves with. And through that, I'm finding more people, you know, that are Gunditjmara and it's just, you know, expanding and really, really nice to have that part of my culture now. And, you know, now I get involved with, you know, Indigenous uni games and I play sport and, you know, do all these on-country development programs and leadership programs as being Aboriginal Australian. And it's really awesome to come into my own culture. Um, I just wish that I could have told myself back then that, you know, yeah. there was n- absolutely nothing to be ashamed of, but look at where we are now. So Yeah, yeah. Well, that's awesome to hear that, you know, you've been able to find those connections and um, overcome that because it is such a hard thing once you've got something that's been, you know, ingrained in you and that shame, as you said, it can be really hard to kind of fight against that. So that's that's really amazing to hear. Awesome. Thank you. Um, I just want to, before we wrap up, I do have two last quick questions for you, if that's okay. Yep. So the first one is from Spirit Super. They um, have given me a question to ask you directly. And so, you know, I feel like you've been well supported um, in your journey in terms of with the venture carpet and that kind of stuff. But um, you can answer this in, in a different way if you prefer. So the question is, do you feel that, being young helps or hinders creating change? Oh, good question. I see, I don't consider myself as young, even though I've just turned 30. <laughs> I was like, I've got, you know, um, I, I think it does. Um, although I was, the way I was raised, I was always told that there is no age limit to education. So, and I've always kept that in mind when doing everything like this, that, you know, being young young is great because I have time to work on it. But also I feel like if I was younger, then I wouldn't have the life experience, life skills that I've had. So it's a really tough question um, where I sit on that. But I do think, you know, being young and coming through um, with the likes of new technologies being developed and everything like that obviously has a benefit. Yeah, good one. Well, on to my last question now. And, uh, you know, this is the Inspirational Australians podcast. Uh, and so we have inspirational people that come on. Uh, and I've been inspired by your journey and your story, you know, the way that you've taken a personal experience and a person, you know, the person, that your, your friend's brother that you know, um, and your own family and using those experience of, of uh, neurodiverse people to like propel you into this incredible research. And really this is why you're a finalist in the create change award. Cause you're making, you know, and I know it's ongoing, but you're, you're making huge change, such positive change for people. So I've been really inspired by you, but Bianca, I want to know what or who is it that inspires you? 
Oh, I'm definitely going to have to say my mum is definitely a big inspiration to me and watching, you know, everything that she's done um, and being there beside her. Um, you know, I was a mature age student starting uni. And like my mum, my mum used to take me to university with her. And my first psychology class, I was 10 years old, you know, really? sitting, taking notes because she couldn't find anyone to look after me. Um, and then as well, yeah, going with Matthew. Matthew is an absolute inspiration to me because the struggles that he faces every day is something that I could never never imagine and he's someone that's so happy pretty much all the time unless he gets overwhelmed it becomes too much but he just he's one of the most honest happy most loving people I've ever met so he truly inspires me you know to keep going and to keep pushing in this field because there's so much that we still need to know and understand so he's good as long as he's there to help me along the way which yeah, I'm sure he'll whinge and complain, but you know <laughs> he knows that he knows that you know I do this, um, and he does have that comprehension that you know I've done this because of you, mate. So it's um, yeah, having with me the whole way. That's brilliant. Well, Bianca, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today uh, on the Inspiration Australians podcast, and yeah, I can't wait to follow your journey and see what's happening with you know your developments, um, and uh, hopefully, you know, in a few short years we'll. Uh, be able to come back and check in with you and, and talk about how your product is available at Chemist Warehouse. That sounds absolutely amazing, Josh. Thank you, Bianca. The Inspirational Australians podcast is brought to you by Awards Australia. We recognise, celebrate and share the stories of the inspirational Australians through our awards programs across the country. To find out more, to nominate an inspirational Australian in your life or to partner with our awards, visit awardsaustralia.com. If you enjoyed today's story, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate and review to make sure you don't miss an episode and to help our guests reach more people with their inspirational stories.